You've got John, you got Derek, and you got Will. How are you guys? Hello. How are you guys doing tonight? Doing pretty good. Um, yeah. How you doing, John? Live and kicking. Will splashing in the pool out there. Oh yeah, I actually went swimming just a little bit ago. If you'll know the truth. <laughs> Do you know it's like cold outside? Not really. Hey, my pool will never shut down. <laughs> It will be open. We're going to start the Hoax Bluff Polar Bear Club January 1st. You're more than welcome to come to my house. And we're all going to jump in the pool at midnight. You know, if you stocked it with some fish, we could go ice fishing too. No, it'd just be like regular fishing. I'm in Alabama. Oh, yeah. You guys don't get ice down there. Heck, I don't even get ice here in Kentucky. I was going to say, you're not in Michigan anymore. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) I drove back to Illinois last weekend, and I got to enjoy 34, 35-degree temperatures. But, yep, headed south real quickly after that. (laughs) The south is a beautiful thing. I need to go a little bit farther south, in my opinion. Then you're just a retired person. And there's nothing, (laughs) nothing wrong with that. I drive in the left lane all the time right now. I just go slower. There you go. You know, I'm I'm far enough south because I have found more snakes in my yard and places that I, yeah, I'm good. I don't need any more snakes than I have right now. This is as far south as I'm going. I got a funny car snake story if you want to hear it right quick. Go for it. I hear you're the humorous one. Derek and I are the very academic ones on this show. Oh, well, I don't know how funny it is if you like if you don't like snakes. All right, so I've been storing a buddy of mine's car in my garage for a couple of years. Anyway. I, th- I thank you for doing that for me. Yeah, yeah, bring it on. You <laughs> may not want me to store it after you hear this story. We have a lot. No, we don't have a lot, but we've got several black snakes, rat snakes, chicken snakes, whatever you want to call them, on our farm. And, and we leave them alone because, you know, they help with, rats and insects and stuff like that we never kill them we always you know if they're out in the middle of the field or something we let them keep on going or if they're up in the barn and we're looking for car parts we just kind of walk around them so anyway there's one that lived underneath the porch of my house and he was or she was pretty good size and anyway my buddy brian he came to, he, he finally got his garage cleaned out. So he's coming to get his car. And so we loaded it up. He took it home and he lived about, he lives about an hour and a half, two hours away from me. He gets home and, you know, gets the car unloaded. And about a week later, he sees a little baby snake crawling through his garage. He's like, what in the world? He killed the snake. And the next night there's like three baby snakes. He just throws them out in the field. The next night, these three or four more baby snakes. So after about a week of that, he's walking through the garage and there's this six foot long king snake <laughs> that, that had curled up and had babies in his car and they were all coming out like one by one. And he come out 
and Mama Snake was curling through the garage. Woo! Yeah, he called me cussing. <laughs> oh, that's your security system. That's right. I told him, I'm like, surely you didn't kill Mama. And he goes, oh, yeah, I killed Mama. I'm like, no. No, king snakes are great snakes to have around your property. Yeah, I was like the the Facebook pictures. If it, you know, if it's a diamond pupil or uh, if it was an oval pu- pupil or if it has this line. No, I'll tell you what, I'll check that when it's dead. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me, Mr. Deadly Snake. Please come here so I can look, get close enough so that me and my bad eyesight can identify your eyeballs. No. I lifted the garage door the other day to meet about a two foot long uh, rat snake hanging out in the garage. So, Heck yeah. Did you let him be? Uh, yeah, he, um, we tried to get him into a, a bucket to take him out into the field, but he, uh, he got away before we could get him out. And uh, I'm sure he went somewhere else after we disturbed him. So, Oh yeah. They're a lot more scared of you than you are of them. I promise. I guarantee you they're not. Dude, catching catching a non-poisonous snake is pretty tough because I mean they're they're trying to get away from you as fast as possible. Oh yeah, he was a fast one. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, I should say he or she because obviously I didn't check and I uh, wasn't close enough to check and I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'd leave them out there. They do good things. Well, we have to be careful because we have the chickens. So I got to kind of keep a, oh, yeah. an eye on things and keep a balance so we don't have one of the rat snakes decide that it's mad at a chicken. And Well, they like chickens. There ain't no doubt. So they like the eggs. and No, actually, they don't like chickens. That's the problem. Oh, they like rats. the rat snakes will they, they tend to go over after mice and rats, obviously rat snake, yeah. but they don't like and they'll eat eggs if there's no other food around. But the at least from what I've read, I'm, I'm not a snake expert by any means. I usually go the other way. But from what I've read, being one of the academic ones on this show, they uh the snakes actually or the chickens actually scare the snakes because they're bigger than the snakes are you know they're okay. stand taller and yep. they'll peck they'll actually peck at the snakes so being a type of constrictor the rat snake's reaction is to coil up around the chicken kill it and then they don't eat it or anything they just let it be dead they gotcha. just kill it to not have it harm them. Yeah. We, we try to keep things in check around the uh, coop. Gotcha. Yeah, we never had any chickens come up missing from snakes, which we wasn't having. We didn't have baby chickens either. We had when they were outside; they were pretty well grown, you know. So, welcome to this episode of No Driving Gloves, where we discuss chickens and snakes. Well, it's we we're going to discuss the snakeskin driving gloves that are coming out. There we go. Ooh, yeah. Just in time for the holidays. With rat snake skin. Well, it's for your rat rods, you know. <laughs> rat rods. I, oh, think, I think rat rods are probably the exact opposite of what we wanted to talk a little bit about tonight. You see these things all the time at auctions, and we go... Ooh, cool. I'd love to have that. It's a brand new car. And you know, I just recently heard up, like I say, I listen to a lot of podcasts and a guy just paid 
six figures for like a 79 or a 77 Smokey and the Bandit Trans Am prior to Burt Reynolds passing, keep in mind, uh, with that had like 500, 600 miles on it. So that, and he was going to use it as a driver, but he got a brand new Trans Am. And you see Corvettes all the time, low miles. And this car has, you know, oh, it's a, I'm trying to think, I saw something really stupid today that, oh, it's, you know, 1,700-mile Dodge Caravan it was. What do you guys think about buying 20- and 30-year-old cars that have never been driven? I mean, they're showroom new, quote. I mean, I'm I'm even guilty of it. I mean, my 62 Chrysler's got 17,000 miles on it, and the Viper in my dad's garage is 22, 2,700 miles, something like that. So it's never been driven, and it's just went through a multi-thousand dollar service to make it roadworthy again. And I'm sure a few more things will creep up as it starts getting used next summer. What do you guys think of, uh, is that a screaming deal that when you all of a sudden see, you know, your 74 Pontiac GTO that has 5,600 miles on it with window sticker, et cetera, Derek, or? Uh, which, which, which approach do I need to take on this? Um, do I take the professional curatorial approach and conservator approach, or do I take the collector hobby approach on it? Well, I'm thinking the majority of our listeners probably are collectors. I don't think, uh, that, you know, I'm sure we have one or two museum people out there that listen, but let's, let's, let's do it for the, uh, everyday guy. You know, I'm not worried about putting it in the National Corvette Museum for all time and having a number, you know, well, I guess I'm worried about having a numbers matching perfect car if I'm buying a uh, low mileage collector, but is it, is it something as thinking, okay, let's take my girlfriend. She loves Geostorms. If all of a sudden she found a 1900 mile, 1990 Geostorm, is that a better buy than say if she found one with maybe... 79,000 miles that had been driven 5,000 miles a year since brand new? I don't know if that math works out, but you know what I mean. Well, I mean, from from my end of things, if... Sorry, I've, I've got to think this through. <laughs> well, how about Will? What is, was, what, what, what's your opinion, Will, if somebody rolled into your shop and said, hey, I've got this 1,900-mile... 76 F100. What do you think of it? Should I buy it? I'm all about it. And let me tell you why. If somebody's calling me and telling me about a low mileage truck, they're not wanting to keep it original. Okay. So the lease, the car has been messed with through the years makes it a whole lot easier on me and a whole lot cheaper on the customer. I'm not having to repair rust. I'm not having to mess with bolts that are a pain in the butt to get out. Perfect example, we have a 66 Cadillac that has just rolled into the shop um, to for a full build. We really started taking it apart this week. It's not an ultra low mileage car. But it's a pretty low mileage car. You know, we're taking it completely apart. Um, we have not had to put penetrating oil on anything. Everything's come apart really nice. There's going to be no rust repair. I would be excited about it. 
yes, I understand there's some low mileage cars that you're not going to change. You're not going to cut up. But a 76 Ford truck with 1,200 miles on it, what else are you going to do with it? You know? Um, right now, the cool thing is to leave the paint alone, put it on the ground, put some nice wheels and tires on it, good suspension, fuel-injected motor, cruise control, air condition, and drive it as a daily driver. So, you know, to me, I embrace the low-mileage cars uh, for what we do. Now, if somebody came to me with, uh, you know, let's say a 67 big block Corvette with 2,500 miles on it and wanted to make a hot rod out of it, I would slap them in the face and be like, look, let's just go find you one that don't have that many miles on it and make a hot rod out of it that may, needs a little bit of work. I mean, I'm, I'm not stupid when it comes to that, but if it's just an average car that you know there's really nothing special about it it's just a neat old car with low miles on it heck yeah you know bring it to us and we'll make it so you can drive it every day and have a good comfortable car that's not going to cost as much as one that's rusty and you know all the wiring's jacked up and stuff like that so that's my take on it thinking it through a little bit and i think this is the way a lot of our conversations end up which is as will just said it it always seems to be a case by case basis but coming at it from the collector side the collector of cars leaving the professional museum side out of this i have no i would have no qualms no issue buying a low mileage car, like Will said, a low mileage car, as Will you know pointed out, it's probably not going to have been messed around with. Um, we're not going to have corrosion issues, bolts that are jammed, things like that, because n- nobody's probably been in there and, and messed it up. I would get it running, go through it, you know, much John like your family's, and enjoy it and experience really kind of what it was like to drive one of those cars when it was brand new, because it's, it's essentially there. I mean, uh, you know, it, again, it hasn't been messed around with, so you know that it's pretty close to just like driving whatever year car it is, that 76 Ford pickup or that 68 Corvette, you get a very authentic and and as close to possible experience um, with an all original car when it's that way i guess my problem comes in when it comes to value of the car you know are the cars really worth all of this money that people are asking for them just because they have low miles on them because one of the big issues is when they have that many that low of miles on them, they haven't been driven a lot. John, as as you've pointed out, you've got to spend even more money in getting them back running correctly and on the road, going through them, because they just haven't been out running. They're not a running driving car typically. They're not you know maintained that way for some reason because people want to keep them low mileage. Hey, you know what? I, I mean, I buy cars to drive. I mean, I put oftentimes, I mean, I've averaging out the, the miles I've driven over the last few years, it's easily 30 to 40,000 miles on a vehicle in a year that I 
I put on cars. If I was to buy one of these ultra low mileage cars, I'm not going to be the guy that looks at it and goes, well, I don't want to drive it because I don't want to put more miles on it. I'm sorry. I'm going to put miles on it because it was built to be driven and experience and really get the feel of what that car is. Like I say, I mean, my issue is with the the value side of it. I, I don't think ultra low mileage cars just because they're ultra low mileage are worth more money. I mean, there still has to be the rarity factor in them. I'm sorry, but a 1986 Chevette that has 2000 miles on it. I'm not going to spend a ton of money on it. I'm, I'm going to give you what an 86 Chevette is worth for it just because it's got ultra low miles. I'm, I'm not going to give you more money for it, but if it's a completely unrestored 1929 Marmon with 3,000 miles on it, and it's been stored in a building all its life, okay, it's it's probably going to be worth a little more than other 1929 Marmons that have been restored out. There's some, some factors that play into it. See, and I can throw out to you uh, on that value thing. I bid on a uh, 1976 Chevette Woody probably, well, before I moved to Alabama. So we'll say 11, 12, 13 years ago, something like that when I was in Virginia. At the time, Chevettes and Pacers and cars like that hadn't caught on. Not that they're exploding right now, but there seems to be a collector car market for them now. I got out of the bidding in the four or $5,000 range. The car ended up selling for six, $7,000, and it was you know, an extremely low miles. I want to say it was a 4,000, 5,000-mile Woody Chevette, one of 500, believe it or not. You know, it's just a vinyl graphic package, but it was a, a factory thing, and it would be a unique car. I think there's some value. People put on low-mileage collectible cars, because they think they're getting a brand new car. I think the experienced buyer, I think all three of us would be in that. I think a lot of our listeners will be in that. Okay, I bought a 1976 Chevette with 3,000 miles on it. It's brand new. I can get in it and drive it just like I went down to the Honda dealership and bought a Civic with 3,000 miles on it. There's not going to be any problems. It's a 3,000-mile car. Or you buy a... 15,000-mile C10 square-body Chevy, like an 84 or an 85. The motor's got 15,000 miles on it. The suspension's got 15,000 miles on it. But the rubber, the belts, the gaskets, the hoses have 35 years on them. I think so many people forget that when they're looking at these low-mile cars. And I think the auction houses portray that incorrectly. Yeah, it's great to buy a low-mileage car, but keep in mind, you're going to have issues. You're going to have problems with it, most likely. There's always exceptions to the rules. Not every car was stored in a perfect climate-controlled building. Sometimes these things were driven home, put in a garage, pushed off to the side. And we were talking before the show, or right at the beginning of the show, about snow and ice and Michigan and Kentucky and Alabama and the differences in temperature. Yeah, sure, the car might have 10,000 miles on it, be 30 years old, but it's from Michigan, it still went through heat and temperature cycles over the years. It may have never seen salt, it may have never seen rain. It sure enough at some point was exposed to 10 degrees and then exposed to, you know, a garage that's probably 80 or 90 degrees. 
And who knows how the coolant was kept up? You know, does it have a crack block? Does it have, you know, any expansion from, you know, systems? Was the oil changed? Was it driven 3,000 miles and it sat with, you know, a half a cup of water in the oil pan just due to the natural givings uh early vipers first generation vipers you know since i i do know you know i know a lot about vipers they have a propensity uh in humid area humid climates for the differential the gears and the differential the rust the because the differential only submerges half the gear set in the in the uh, the rear end so the the gear the part of the gear set that sits out of the oil rusts due to you know humidity it's little things like that that I think people don't realize when it comes to these low mileage collector cars. Yeah, they're great to own, but there's they can be a nightmare to service and get back on the road just so that you can say, "Hey, I've got a eight thousand mile car, or I've got a twelve thousand mile car." You say, "I would rather have something that was driven five thousand miles a year, or even a thousand miles a year, rather than something that's been stored thirty years and has." very few miles on it. It just gets expensive. Yeah. And I think I've mentioned it on the show before. My wife and I have Suzuki GT 185 sitting in the garage with the the Falcon and the Peerless. Part of the reason I bought it, it was extremely reasonably priced. Uh, You know, it was basically a deal you couldn't pass up. It only has 289 miles on it. Now the Suzuki GT 185 uh, motorcycle is a uh, two-stroke still. It was uh, built right around the time they were switching over to the the four-stroke engines for Suzuki. It, it sat in a garage all its life. I mean, thirty some years in a garage, just sitting because it never got ridden. I mean, I have to go through the entire bike to deal with just general corrosion issues on the the bright work or the chrome you know the chrome surfaces the the frame the black you know black painted frame has corrosion that i've got to clean up and take care of and stabilize and do all those things too i also have to go through the engine and make sure everything's okay with that before i fire it up again because as john says i don't know if there's corrosion in the cylinder i don't know if there's corrosion in the case the crankcase you know you pull the the brake on the the right handlebar and the master cylinder seized up because it just sat with brake fluid in all, all that time, which, you know, is, uh, you know, brake fluid uh, of that era attracts moisture into the system. So it's, I'm sure the master cylinder and, and everything is rusted and seized up. So I basically have to take a 289 mile bike, a basically brand new bike completely apart and do more work to it to get it up and running again than I would had I bought a bike that was running and driving that had 5,000 miles on it. You know, right there is the case that, you know, it's, it's not always that low mileage vehicles are these fantastic finds that, oh, like John said, you know, it's like running down to the dealership and buying a lightly used car. Well, no, it's got 30 some years on it still. You have to take that into consideration. And Will, as somebody who's working on something like that at present, and I'm sure in the past, are are Derek and I unique in this, or have you found some of those 
where Warren situation, things that the owner thinks that, you know, hey, it's a 66 Cadillac. It's got low mileage on it. Maybe we don't have to do too much to the motor. Or, you know, I'm sure there's probably putting some, you know, North Star V8 or late model GM thing in there. But do you see this damage that, of course, you know, you're just throwing the parts away or reselling them on eBay to a collector? What's your experience, you know, having worked on a few of these vehicles? and Well, most of the things that we're doing to them, you know, all the belts and all the hoses and, you know, all of that stuff is being replaced anyway. I don't really inspect them when we're taking them, taking them apart. We may look at them and go, wow, this thing's, this thing's in great shape. But we're replacing it anyway. So, But a lot of the little things that you don't really think about let's just say the the window fuzzies um the window tracks a lot of things like that you don't have to find replacement parts for you don't have to put new bushings to make the windows roll up and down and it's all gm stuff i don't give a crap what aftermarket company it is there's no replacing a good factory part so you can buy aftermarket you know window regulators they don't work like a general motors window regulator just things like that you know you don't have to go rebuild or find remanufactured parts for you know as far as the stuff that over a period of time breaks down and you know like rust in the in the in the rear diff 99% 99% of the time we're changing the rear end or at least the gear ratio anyway. So that's not really a factor. We're changing drive shafts. So U joints aren't really a factor. We're changing brakes. So that's not really a factor. We do replace all the brake lines just for safety precautions because, you know, back in the day, brake lines were just made out of mild steel and they rust, you know, they didn't have this copper nickel blend and, and all of these awesome coatings that we have nowadays, you know, that's just a, a thing that you need to do on, on any old car. If you look and see rusty brake lines, even if it's just got surface rust on them, you still need to replace brake lines. There's nothing, there's not a worse feeling in the world than hitting a brake pedal and there's nothing there. You know, most of the stuff we, we replace it anyway. A lot of the wiring we replace anyway. Um, you know, we're updating, you know, putting a, better radios and lighting and stuff like that in them. Even if we're not messing up stock integrity of the car, we'll replace, put an extra light under the dash or something like that. So, you know, we're adding a bunch of wiring anyway. So most of the time we just rewire them. You know, it really hadn't, it really don't affect us too much. It affects us more in a positive way than it does uh, a negative way. Yeah, and I think that's kind of where I mentioned earlier. That's where I wind up taking issue with just the the idea that these cars are more valuable because they've got low mileage on them. It's just, in some ways, I guess it all depends on how they were taken care of over time. Can you get in it and drive it and have no problems? Then maybe, maybe it's worth some more money than another one that's got 
30,000 miles and has been repainted twice and had some, some work done here and there, and there might be a wrong fastener or something like that. But I think flipping the, flipping the coin, at least for my life and looking at the historical value of the vehicle and what we can learn from ultra low mileage vehicles, there's a lot of value there on the museum side, on the educational side, on the, even on the, the restoration side of the car hobby, we can learn a lot from ultra low mileage cars because we can actually see how the cars were assembled. We can see before fit and finish was back in the day. Um, how things were not adjusted as perfectly as some people in certain car show circuits feel they should be. You know, so I, I think on the flip side of the coin here, as I say, from that more history museum standpoint, there is a value in what we can learn from these cars about you know, the history of the assembly, you know, of vehicles, the quality of vehicles over time. I mean, even down to, you know, we are able on early cars that are unrestored that still have original finishes, things like that. We're really able to understand how the paint was applied at the time, you know, especially early on, you know, the brush techniques that were used, pumice rubbing, um, multiple layers of brushed basically tinted varnish all the way up to early, you know, vehicles with spray applied paint and measuring the thickness of the paint and how it was put on. You know, there, there's a lot to learn on that side of things that make them more valuable historically, in my opinion. But I think another side of this discussion than just the, I want to collect it and drive it side. I'll tell my customers, you know, if, if, you know, if they're looking for something to build, you know, you're, you're a lot better off in the long run, not necessarily finding a ultra low mileage car, but finding a good car to start with, because you're going to save a ton of time, you know, especially if we're going to be, you know, modifying something and changing it a good bit. Because the first thing we have to do is get the structural integrity back in the car before we can start really changing anything, you know, making sure stuff's going to line up and fit and, and get all of the, you know, all of the kind of a crap repaired before we start making, making changes. If you're looking to build a hot rod, whether you're going to cut it into a million pieces or not, you're still better off starting with a good car. There was nothing more pleasant in my life than when I bought a 2003 S10 in 2003, and at 700 miles, I had the thing lowered and on, you know, Krager SSs and everything. Working on brand new factory torque settings sure beat the heck out, even working on my 19,000 mile Azuzu, you know, 15 years earlier, uh, lowering it, putting wheels on it. But the brand new car was so much nicer to work with. And I can see that from Will's standpoint. Everything's there. You know it's right. And from the museum standpoint that, you know, Derek's taking, and I take a lot, especially in restoration, it's 
you know, wonderful. Uh, one of my projects, oh, five, six years ago, uh, was a Lotus 27 race car that was raced in 1963, one season. Uh, bought brand new in the, you know, f- winter and raced for 1963, was put up and never run again. So when I got to the car in, oh, 13 or 14, you know, 50 years after it was built, it was presented to me and let's keep the thing original the way it was at the end of the race. Now, granted, a museum standpoint, a museum is a little bit different. Uh, you know, we're we're wanting to present history and we wanted to prevent, uh, present that snapshot in time, end of racing season 1963. And, you know, we carefully disassembled the car or I carefully disassembled the car. And, you know, there was some rust in that that had occurred in 15, 50 years and removed that and was able to, you know, seal the chrome. We didn't replate anything. We didn't repaint anything. We just made it mechanically viable to use again. And it was a wonderful process. But I think when I started the topic or when I first heard this topic idea, I just really went from it from the consumer stand. If you want a project car, you know, if you want to take your 76 Chevette over to Will and say, hey, I want a, you know, lowered car with, you know, put an LS in this thing. It's great for him, and it's going to save you some money in the long run. Derek, he lives in the world of Corvette, about 9 to 5 or whatever it is, 7 to seven to 9, probably is more realistic hours for him. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, a game of, with Corvettes, it's low mileage and originality, and, you know, that's the name of the game, and Corvette collecting, and there, there's one aspect to look at it that way, that it's, you want this original stuff and that way presented as such. We do the same thing where I'm at. You know, the first three motorcycles that were added to the collection at the Barber Museum were purchased brand new off the showroom floor, and they're still on dis- they're on display. You can walk right up to see them. They're three 1986 through 87 Hondas, and they all have zero to one mile on them. And the thing is, people said to Mr. Barber, when he purchased those, what are you doing? You know, these are brand new motorcycles. They tell him that now when, you know, we buy 20 to 30 new motorcycles every year with the intention of preserving them so that when somebody goes to restore a motorcycle in 20 years, they can come see an original untouched motorcycle. You can come see our 1986 Honda VFR. And I believe that's it. I'm, like I say, I'm a car guy in a motorcycle world. One mile. It's got every correct finish, every correct bolt. And one thing we do, unlike the Corvette world, we allow all the PPI to be done. All the pre-purchase inspections, all the tags are taken off. The bikes are delivered to us as they would the consumer on the road. We don't play that factory game. If you went into a Honda dealership or a Harley dealership and drove away in a 2018 whatever, that's the way the bikes delivered to us. So it, it's not as, you know, new in the crate. It's new as it would be delivered off the showroom floor, which, you know, is another way of looking at it. It's the way the, you know, it's the way the bike was supposed to be enjoyed and the way most people will restore their bikes too. You know, Derek always brings an interesting perspective to this and, you know, Will brings the other perspective on, you know, I want to say cutting them up and 
you know, hot rodding them, but some things are, <laughs> some things Destroyed. are meant to be cut up and hot rodded. Uh, <laughs> I think a lot more people would like to see a 76 Chevette with a LS in it than my low mileage 76 Chevette Woody. So, <laughs> so. You know, I, I want to throw something in there, John, because I, one of the, I, I think one of my, my favorite things with, let's call it low mileage, uh, you know, but unrestored cars, especially low mileage ones that, you know, all the finishes are very well intact at the Corvette museum. I'm, I tend to be an anomaly in, in some of these, uh, circles, but we have, you know, 1995 prototype number three, uh, Grand Sport Corvette. So this is the the prototype that was put together to develop the the 1996 Grand Sports. And this number three car was for Delphi, so they could figure out the you know test the wiring harnesses and do all their electrical work and and everything. When it's on display at the museum, I love uh, talking about the car. You know, telling people that it's it's you know original. It's the prototype you know it's it's delphi test car all this stuff but i love showing them the runs in the paint because this is a prototype car a pilot car if you will a test car although gm was you know assembling these things and and you'll basically it's it's a c4 with you know different engine in it for the grand sport package and and all the different things that they did for the grand sport wheel flares things like that they weren't making sure every little bit of this car was perfectly pristine and showroom quality. And, you know, this is going to be, you know, out at the, you know, New York auto show and it's got to be perfect. No, it was get it together, get it done, get it out, get it on the testing, you know, get it developed, you know, let's get the car figured out. And I think that's, that's one of the cool things about any of these, unrestored cars that are, are fairly low mileage and what I always try to tell people and, and try to kind of impress on people is clean it up, but don't, don't take the imperfections out because those tell more of the story than like the run in the grand sport number three prototype Delphi test car yeah, could we wet sand that down and buff it out and make it look better? Yeah, you could, but you've just taken that whole part of the story out and you don't get the entire history of the development of the grand sport and what they were doing during that C4 era. You know, that's, that's kind of one of the things that John, you and I tend to look for very heavily in these cars in the museum world is You've got fantastic stories when you start looking at the the nuances of the finishes and the the you know fit and all of these things that are left untouched because of this low mileage situation. There, Derek goes making it deep again. <laughs> but I do like that you know that aspect. I do have to ask you on a sidetrack: Does that Grand Sport number three have the red slashes on the fender? No, it does not. That's what I, I I heard a rumor many years ago when the Grand Sport came out, and this is just a side story. Uh, from where I'm from in Peoria, Illinois, there's a Chevy deer, dealer, Gary Uftring, and supposedly they presented the cars to a lot of the dealers. 
And Uftering said, if you're going to build a Grand Sport, you've got to put those slashes on the fender. And supposedly that comment was taken and that the, the production Grand Sports have the red slashes on the fender. And supposedly they're there. The story I was told is because Gary Uftering brought that up in the uh, dealer presentation meeting. So be interesting trivia to find out exactly when they came, if they were on any of the prototypes. Now it's the Dodge logo. How funny is that? Right? <laughs> I'm lost. Where did the Dodge logo come in? The two slashes. Oh yeah. The the two essentially what they people would call the sergeant stripes or the the hash marks. Yeah. Um. It, it's now more associated with Dodge than it is with with the Corvette Grand Sport. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, but originally, if you go back to the Grand Sports of the '60s, they wore the, that those stripes. So, yep, it's crazy that General Motors didn't trademark that stripe. You know, who would have ever thought to trademark a stripe or you know things like that? Dude, they trademarked they trademarked everything back then. You know, I don't know if it was so bad in the '60s. I mean, now you. <laughs> in the '60s, it wasn't that big. You know, right now I have a business a concept go through my head, and, and the first thing I do before I even draw the idea or even begin to write a business plan is I buy the domain, <laughs> yeah. and I don't search for the domain until I'm ready to buy the domain. Because the moment you search, some guy like me is going to come along and buy it when they. Find did we help anybody out there? I I wonder on low mileage cars, or does uh, do listeners have feedback? You know, I'd like to get a little bit more two way communication going with you guys out there that listen to our shows every week. Uh, I know you're out there because I see the download numbers, and to be honest, I'm thrilled. You know, look us up on uh, Instagram or Facebook. No driving gloves web. No driving gloves dot com has all of our uh, episodes. I hope everybody's okay with me. Uh, We had the Andy Pilgrim episode a couple of weeks ago, and I thought it was a fabulous episode. But in the center of that episode, Andy really promotes, uh, you know, I don't want to say a charity, but a thing that is very close to him is the Traffic Safety Education Foundation. And I think it was a segment of the show that reaches out to more than the collector car people. Um, We've covered in many episodes how teen driver safety and that is important to us and it's a passion of andy's now it was a great interview Derek, and uh i i publicized it as probably one of our best episodes some of the stuff you had andy speak of i i honestly was flabbergasted you, the topics were touched and covered so well not saying you you're a horrible interviewer i was just amazed to hear i'll be honest discussing dale earnhardt's not last days literally last minutes uh, so that I thought that was a you know a fabulous episode and you know like I say he discusses mid engines and he discusses Corvettes he doesn't necessarily discuss mid engine Corvettes but um, the press seems to be pretty on track on that that one maybe <laughs> oddly I you haven't heard from or seen Andy Pilgrim since that episode hmm. mm, he he met did you see any black suburbans. <laughs> I've seen a few circling the museum. No. Well, this was the last episode Derek was with was with us. So. 
But no, that was a fabulous episode. And uh, we've got a couple more lined up. Uh, I can't drop any names, but I've got a couple race car drivers lined up. Uh, Will's got a couple celebrities. We finally have these recording issues resolved. We're able to put five or six people on the show at the same time now. I want to thank everybody for our support and sticking with us the last couple of months due to the recording issues. And I'm going to go to bed now, guys. So happy generic time of the day. <laughs> and uh, I'll see you later. Have a good one. Yeah. I wish I was going to bed. I still got work to do. Yeah, you're getting ready for SEMA in, what, two, three weeks, right? Yeah, I, I'm getting ready for SEMA, and I've got to write a uh, a press release here when I get off. So, yeah. Well, remember to send that press release to us too, and we'll stick it on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, you want me to you want me to spoil the press release? Heck yeah! Actually, actually, it might be released before this is released. So, Big Oak Garage has teamed up with Scotty D TV. And we are about to start building him a new road vehicle. So it will be a 2005 Yukon Denali all-wheel drive, six-liter, that will be wind up pushing 550, maybe 600 horsepower, um, new suspension, wheels, tires, a crazy wrap, uh, updated brakes, stuff like that. So... uh, Anyway, that's what the press release is about. And, uh, and so Scotty's retiring the old Mustang? Yep, yep. He's he's going to pull the wrap off the Mustang and, and have, a, have a normal car to drive around town and just be Scott Dupree, you know, so. Well, let's get uh, Scotty on when you guys all get back from SEMA and get rested, and we'll have him chat about what he's looking forward to doing in 2019, so. Yeah, that'd be good. It'd be a good interview, too, to kind of see how he got started. He was just a guy in Knoxville, Tennessee, that grabbed a camera and started running around parking lots and chasing cars. And look what it's turned into. He's had a couple of videos go over, uh, I want to say 100,000 for sure, but a couple of videos over a million views now? or Oh, yeah. So. Oh, yeah. He's probably got, well, I don't, I don't know. I know he's got one that's over... 10 million, I think. Yeah. Uh, 155,000 YouTube subscribers, 16, 17,000 followers on, on Facebook that is growing rapidly. I don't think it's quite hit 100,000 yet, um, but he's about to pass 100,000 views on one video that he's put on Facebook only. He's kind of transitioning where he's putting videos on YouTube and just on Facebook, not just sharing from YouTube to Facebook. And fortunately enough, that that vehicle is one that we built. It's the 42 Chevy truck that we just finished. Yeah, I've seen that video. Well, like I said, let's get him on the show. That probably for the listeners that want to aspire to a YouTube channel or something, that could be an interesting conversation for him. Big, big so there we are teasing an upco- upcoming probably November or December episode, <laughs> but uh, we'll get that put together. Um, Scotty's around Will all the time, so we'll see how that goes. Derek, you have any parting words or? Well, you know, if we were the three of us were better looking, we'd probably do a YouTube channel too. But yeah, I don't think anybody wants to see us. Now we have the face for podcasting, so <laughs> definitely. <laughs> 
But with that, I'm closing the show, and uh, we'll talk to you, everybody, in a week. Adios. See ya.